Welcome, Folky friends. We are glad to have you with us here at Fabric of Folklore. My name is Vanessa Y. Rogers, and I'm your host on this podcast where we unravel the mysteries of folklore. In this, po- in this podcast, we attempt to understand ourselves and the stories as we as a society have weaved and are continuing to weave, threading together the tapestry that makes us us and makes humans humans. And folk tales and folklores are not merely stories we tell children, but are living artifacts and hold meaning. And so here on this podcast, we are attempting to uncover the heart and essence of folklore. And today we have an incredible guest. Um, Dr. Christina Downs is the executive director of the Texas Folklore Society, as well as an assistant professor of English at Tarleton State. She has worked previously for the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. She was the managing editor of the Journal of Folklore Research for five years, and she is co-editor of Advancing Folkloristics, which considers current issues in the field of folklore, folklore studies. Um, in this episode, we're going to focus on her research revolving around crime. Oh, let me see. We're going to focus on her work in the cross-stitching of crime and folklore studies. Um, and her current book pro- examines how crime-solving communities and media portray serial killers as contemporary monster narratives. Sorry, that was a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> you, you have a long bio. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, Thank you yeah. so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. And I'm really excited today because you are our first folklorist. So I'm going to do a bit of brain picking for you today, just so that we have some terminology correct and uh, definitions correct. Because I I don't know about the rest of my guests, but I didn't really um, have, I didn't really know folklorist was even a profession just a few months ago. So um, this is just really exciting to have you on. I think that's really common. I didn't know being a folklorist was a thing you could do until I was looking at graduate school programs and fortunately happened to stumble upon a graduate program in folklore studies and go, wait, that's a thing I can do? (laughs) (laughs) And what drew you into that, that field of study? So I think in a lot of ways, I was always trying to be a folklorist again before knowing that was a thing I could do. I, if you look at my undergraduate transcript. My undergraduate degree is in Latin American studies, but if you look, I ended up with something like 21 credits in English and 19 credits in Russian and like 16 credits in theater and I had a minor in dance. And you can see I was kind of all over the place because mm-hmm. I was interested in a broad spectrum of things, but in all of my classes, I kind of felt like my teachers were telling me I was focusing on the wrong things that you know, mm-hmm. I love studying literature. I now teach literature. I, I love literature, but what I was more so interested in was all of the kinds of things behind the literature, all of the, the things that were influencing mm-hmm. an author to help them create the literature. And, and in my history classes, I wasn't so much interested in, you know, the big names as sort of what was going on beneath the surface and what were the stories that weren't uh, necessarily being documented by official historians. And uh, it, was kind of a running thing. And when I found out that folklore studies was a field, it was sort of a, oh, okay, this is where I can go kind of focus on all of those 
those things that often get brushed under the carpet by other disciplines. So. so can you give us a definition of what folklore is and what people think it might be, but they might be wrong about? Sure. So my what I always tell my students, my quick and dirty working definition is that folklore is traditional expressive culture. So uh, by traditional, I don't mean old. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about folklore. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that to be folklore, something has to be really old. And traditional mm -hmm. just means that it's happened more than once with a special meaning attached to it. So mm -hmm. uh, like the example I always give is, you know, I hit my snooze button at least five times every morning before I get out of bed. That's not a tradition because there's no special meaning attached to that. It's just that I'm sleep deprived. <laughs> I to bed earlier. But, you know, if I hit my snooze button every morning so that I could have five minutes to meditate or pray, that might be a tradition. That would be, you know, something that was, uh, it had a special meaning attached to it um, mm -hmm. in that way. When I talk about folklore being, oh, you have a question? No, 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 go ahead. Okay. When I talk about folklore being expressive, what I mean is that it's always communicating something. And sometimes that's a message or a moral that you're, you know, a parent's giving to their child to teach them how to live their life and how to interact with the world. Sometimes it's just about aesthetics and just about this is beautiful and just about this is entertaining. And um, mm -hmm. But it's communicating something. And then mm -hmm. culture just means that it's always related to a group of some kind. Uh that group can be as large as a nation or it can be as small as just two people that share something between them. Okay. And how would you say a folklorist looks at the world differently than say an anthropologist, an anthropologist or maybe a historian? I'm going to borrow uh, an analogy from a friend of mine with folklore and anthropology, which is that he always says, uh, this is my uh, colleague, Jesse Fivegoat. He says that uh, anthropology is kind of the cosmology of culture. It looks at things on a really broad um, spectrum. And folklore is the particle physics of culture. So we're looking at things very, mm. very, you know, very small individual level. Another way, and I'm speaking kind of generally, speak, there's mm -hmm. obviously exceptions to all of this, but anthropologists tend to um, look at a culture as a whole and uh, that when they do look at individuals, those individuals are there to be a way of understanding the culture. Folklorists tend to go in a little bit of a different direction that will study the culture as a whole as a means of understanding an individual. So we kind of go in a little bit of a reverse order. There's certainly a huge overlap between our two disciplines and there's a lot of folklorists working mm -hmm. in anthropology departments and mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of um, back and forth between our disciplines, definitely. And where besides universities would you find a folklorist? There's a lot working at museums. There are a lot working in state art, arts agencies. I think most every state in the United States has at least one kind of state folklorist that's in charge of documenting and um, kind of assisting in uh, folk traditional practices in their state. And sometimes those are in like a humanities department. Sometimes those are, um, you know, in some kind of uh, state arts agency. Um, Groups like the Smithsonian, um, the Library of Congress uh, has several folklorists. Uh, you do have a lot of folklorists working in archives. Um, and you have a lot of folklorists that are creative writers. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, for example, mm -hmm. fantasy authors that have backgrounds in folklore studies. Mm -hmm. um, really cool thing about a folklore degree is that it's a really flexible degree. So while there aren't a ton of jobs out there that specifically want someone with a folklore degree, there's a lot of things that you can apply a folklore degree towards. 
And so you were talking about, you are the executive director of the Texas Folklore Society. What does the Texas Folklore Society do? And is it similar to, do other states have those societies as well? Other states do have them. We are the largest and the oldest continually operating folklore society. So we're pretty proud of that. Yay, we, were, yeah. <laughs> we were founded in 1909. Um, and one thing that does make our society a little bit unique is that the majority of people in the Texas Folklore Society are just people who love folklore. So they're not necessarily people like me that have degrees in folklore. They're just someone who got interested in it, either through studying Mm -hmm. their families or their community or just thinks it's cool. Uh, Most other state folklore um, societies are a lot more degree holding folklore. So people that are working in the field of folklore studies or, you know, um, that are a little more um, kind of professional. We have a mix in the Texas Folklore Society. And I think that's something that makes us really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a lot of fun. Do you think that maybe it's so old because, you know, being from Texas, and I know that a lot of people who come to Texas to visit, they always mention how proud Texans are of Texan culture. Do you think that might have something to do with it? I definitely think it has something to do with it. Certainly uh, in terms of the size and the resilience of the Texas Folklore Society, you know, at one time, I think probably every state, not necessarily every state, but most states had one. And a lot of them have kind of, um, just kind of fallen away through lack of interest. And I think the fact that Texans love their state so much is absolutely something that's helped uh, this organization stay as active as it is. I mean, we have over 300 members and that's pretty large for a state folklore organization. Our uh, kind of founding does kind of tie in with that. It's actually a great, um, perfect Texas story. So we were founded by a professor at Texas A&M and a professor at University of Texas, Austin. So, um, kind of the, the, the two big flagship schools in the state. And to make it even more appropriate, they met at a Thanksgiving fo- football game. Oh, of um, course. <laughs> I don't remember if that was in Austin or College Station. And uh, their names were John Lomax and uh, Leonidas Payne. And they kind of just started saying, you know, well, there's this American Folklore Society. We need a Texas branch of that. And Lomax actually had recently graduated from Harvard, where one of his teachers had said, you know, well, if you're going to Texas, you should found a folklore society there and uh, so he did how cool um okay let's see let me see some of the questions um okay so let's get into a little bit about your uh, true crime um so can you explain how crime fits into folklore sure there's a lot of different ways um and what i look at what got me Uh, into it. It's interesting. I'm not, or at least I wasn't for most of my life, really someone who was into true crime. I never read the book, read, you know, true crime books. Mm -hmm. I didn't watch all of the shows. Uh, I mean, I did, I remember watching Unsolved Mysteries as a kid. I think that was about Mm -hmm. it. Um, I was someone who got really freaked out by learning about true crime. And so I kind of steered away Mm -hmm. from it deliberately. And as happens, seems to be a Thing with me in my life. I stumbled across by accident, uh, just kind of poking around on the internet, um, the online crime solving forums. And I kind of sat there for a minute going, I don't know what's going on there here, but there's something really interesting going on culturally in these uh, online crime solving communities. And what finally kind of struck me as, okay, like there, I knew there was something that was kind of poking around at the back of my brain was that the way that people were talking about crimes 
very closely paralleled the way that people tell legends and the way that people share legends. Um, Can you give us a definition of what a legend is so that we're clear on that? So a legend is a story which is presented as true. uh, And I can Mm -hmm. poke around with the the notion of truth and legend uh, in a minute because it a lot of times, even people that are telling and hearing legends know as they're telling and hearing them that they're not true, but they're still going to be told as though they're a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually about real people, though it might be a real person interacting with something supernatural. Uh, so it might be a person encountering a ghost or a cryptid or something. Sorry about that. Um, uh, let me close my email program so that stops happening. Um, uh, um, so maybe a person interacting with something supernatural, but your main character is going to be a regular human um, okay. and often kind of a regular run-of-the-mill person. Legends take place in specific times and specific places, though you sometimes have the same legend taking place in multiple specific times and multiple specific places. So uh, here in Texas, one of our famous legends are the ghost tracks in San Antonio, where they say that a school bus was hit by a train. And if you put your car on the train tracks and put it, your car in neutral, it will go roll uphill off of the train tracks. And they say that it's the spirits of the children pushing you to safety and people will put flour on the back of their car. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say you can see handprints um, showing this. And there's ghost tracks in several other places as well. So there are several other places that have really similar stories that say, oh, here's where, and it's often a bus full of children or a group of children that were killed somehow or another. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's a bridge, sometimes it's train tracks, uh, but you have the same kind of thing. The Vanishing Hitchhiker, where you have you know a man who's driving at night and he sees a woman on the side of the road, and it's usually raining and uh, kind of isolated area, and he pulls over and offers her a ride. She tells him where she's going, and he gives her his coat because she's shivering. And then when he pulls up to the address she gave him and he turns to let her out of the car, she's not there, and he's confused. So he goes to the door to check and see if she got in okay, and. An older woman answers the door and says, oh, that was my daughter who died 25 years ago tonight uh, in that exact spot where you encountered her. She was hit by a car. And then he'll often there's a coda where he goes to her uh, tombstone the next day and finds his jacket folded neatly on the uh, on her tombstone. Um, and that story we can date to at least the 19th century, where it's a person driving a carriage who pulls over um, and picks oh, wow. up a young woman. And it's all told all over the world. I was... Uh, teaching this one time and one of my students who was from Ecuador looked at me really confused and she said, no, that happened in Guayaquil. I know exactly where that story happened. <laughs> it's not an American story. <laughs> and there's a place in Chicago, it's called Resurrection Mary that's very famous. So uh, these stories kind of move around, but they're usually set in a specific time and place. And okay. they also, the other thing about legends is that they do have some kind of message or moral usually in them, but they're not openly stated. So it's not like a fable that's going to end with, you know, the slow and steady wins the race or you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. But usually you can kind of figure out easily. There is some kind of instructive thing about telling you like, you know, so be careful when you're driving late at night or, you know. Yeah. Like so you were saying that you were seeing this in the crime solving communities online. Right. So I was seeing that the stories that people were kind of constructing and they were constructing them communally. So one person would say, you know, well, I think this happened. And then the next poster would kind of operate as though that thing that person had offered up was true. And then say, well, and if that, then this and kind of add on to the story until you have kind of a coherent narrative developing that's, you know, kind of been constructed by this group. And that would have a lot of the same characteristics of legend in terms of, um, 
one another characteristic of legends we talk about is validating formulas. So something that is built into a legend story to um, prove that it's true. So this, you know, well, this happened to a friend of a friend of mine, uh, or I've seen the spot where this happened. I know that it's true. Right. All of those things you have in legends, you would have also in these stories that were coming on the crime solving communities of, well, I've been to this place and this is, you know, what I think happened uh, based on that. Or uh-huh. I know someone who knows someone who's connected with the case and this is what they told me. Um, and uh, so I thought that was really interesting. And so that's what really brought you into this field of, of looking at crime. Right. Okay. And, and so I'm like you in that I find that um, I'm, I'm a mom and I feel like a lot of people in my peer group and a lot of moms are super into true crime. And, but I have never been really interested in crime myself, but there's obviously some sort of attraction to it. What is it? Do you think that, that attracts um, so many people to, you know, like watch these TV shows and there's so many different podcasts about crime and true crime. Yeah. I think there's a couple of different things. I think the one that, is fairly obvious to me is that it gives people kind of a sense of control. You know, again, I think everybody is afraid of crime. That's something that's, you know, we're afraid of being hurt or afraid of, you know, somebody who wishes us ill or something happening to someone we love or we care about. Um, That's a, you know, almost universal fear. And I think that hearing for some people hearing about it and learning more about it gives them some kind of sense of control over it. Like, Okay, if I know enough about it, then I can protect myself. If I know like how to look mm-hmm. for a serial killer, I can't be attacked by one. If I know, um, you know, how to avoid a predator, then I can keep my kids safe. If I can look for the right signs. And I think in a world that can be really scary, it gives people some kind of sense of control um, over it. I think that sometimes it's a, a desire to understand the un understandable, you know, how can someone do some of these really terrible things? There's, I think, for some people are really pushed to like, understand what, what turns a person into a monster? How does a person who physiologically is just like me do something that's so unimaginable to me as a, you know, as a sane person? Um, Mm -hmm. I also think, and this is the part that I kind of struggle with myself to explain and to understand is that there is an entertainment factor in there. And I think you can't, mm-hmm. I had that uh, killed. Um, and we can't ignore the entertainment factor. We can't ignore the fact that some part of the reason people are engaging with this is because they find it entertaining. One, um, you know, there's a lot written on uh, particularly the fact that women seem to be really interested in true crime and why it, this, this seems like such a, not a thing that women would be interested in and why are they, and I think, uh, you know, if you look at like kids' toys, like girls have kitchen sets and teapots and dolls and things like that. They have things that are associated with domesticity. Um, boys have, you know, toy guns and toy bows and arrows and toy soldiers. And boys kind of have this other thing to, um, you know, let maybe act like a pressure valve and let any kind of violent impulses out. I don't, I, I mean, I, this is maybe for the psychologist to understand <laughs> better than me. Um, you know, I think that it does give women a way that's a little bit more socially acceptable to engage with this. It was kind of fascinating to me when I started giving papers at conferences on true crime related stuff. 
And the first time I did, you could tell the conference organizers hadn't expected it to be a well-attended panel because we were first thing in the morning on Saturday and we were in a small room and it was ended up being standing room only. It was a really popular panel. And every person who got up, got up at the end to ask a question prefaced it with, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I really like true crime. And <laughs> they were all in. It was, like you know, it was like, a guilty yeah. sin. Right. By the fourth time, it's like, okay, I think you know that you're among friends. You don't have to apologize for liking this. But, um, yeah, I think it is kind of maybe a way to uh, experiment, experience something terrible in like a, I don't know. I'm still trying to work that part out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you said that a lot of what you see in um, these groups and in, in media is this separation of the um the criminals from humanity is that right yes um and a painting of them as as modern day monsters can you talk a little bit more about that okay so um again i think it's it's this desire to kind of understand and um for example though i i hate to talk about him because i i think people need to stop talking about him but ted bundy is one of the you know probably one of the best known American serial killers. There's this, you know, all these made for TV movies and documentaries and like keeps coming up over and over again. And one of the things that people always feel the need to bring up about him is that he was good looking. And mm-hmm. first of all, I don't know that he really was that good looking, but why does it matter that he's good looking? Why does that have anything to do with the things that he did other than we attribute value to good looking people, don't we? We do. And I think it makes the betrayal worse that he looks normal and yet he did these terrible things. If we can, if we could make all of our serial killers look like monsters, then we would feel safer, right? Because we could just mm-hmm. avoid the people that look like monsters. And, but it's the fact that, and I would say, you know, again, I don't find Ted Bundy to be that attractive. Of course, I can't divorce what I know about him from his picture, but I think I would say more than being attractive, he just looks average. He looks very normal. Uh, you know, he's was clean cut. He was, you know, dressed like a normal guy, whatever normal means. Um, and so, whereas if you look at traditional monster stories, the monsters always look like monsters. The mon- you know, they're uh, either gigantic or have, you know, spikes all over them or, or horns or, you know, um, okay. there's something, right. Yeah. Something physical about them that makes them monstrous. And we don't have that with our, our modern stories. We're kind of left in modern society confronted with the fact that humans are monsters. And so mm-hmm. how do we kind of negotiate that? And I think what you see is people f- trying to find a way to move, move these people further and further away from the category of human. And you'll see a lot of adjectives used. You'll see them called monsters very frequently, but you'll also see them called, you know, things like animals or predators or, uh, words that we use to um, associate with monsters. If you look at uh, something I'm working on right now is serial killer nicknames. And first of all, there's a lot. Oh that, yes. Give us a few, a few yeah. interesting serial killer nicknames. I mean, there's quite a few that have something like, you know, the vampire of Sacramento. Um, there's the, vamp- there's a vampire serial killer in Argentina also. And in both those cases, it had something to do with their methodology, but you know, we're also kind of putting, this um, literal monster identity attached to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one in Detroit who's never been caught called, who's referred to as Bigfoot. Um, and 
just mostly based on the fact that he was a large man, uh, based on what <laughs> they know of who he was. Um, and so again, like we're, we've made a human into a little literal cryptid as a means of, you know, trying to keep ourselves say, trying to, you know, make him, um, you have a lot that are compared to animals. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's one in Russia, I forget his real name, who was called the hippopotamus. That's probably the most, um, <laughs> strange animal. Hippopotamus. But, Interesting. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of, you know, things uh, with, uh, um, alligators, I think are, have been used in quite a few, um, and there's quite a few that are just the monster of uh, that's it. That formulation seems to be really common in Italy. And I, I'm still trying to figure out uh, that. And I don't speak Italian. So that's <laughs> a little bit of a, um, yeah, there's a lot of like the monster of Venice, the monster of uh, Milan, the monster of, uh, you know, whatever. Um, there's uh, a lot of things like the demon uh, of whatever. A lot of times there'll be a place name put in there. There was a, Russian female serial killer was referred to as Satan in a skirt. Um, and uh, I think there's a whole other a dynamic when we get it. Get alliterative yeah. alliteration. <laughs> uh, but when we get into female serial killers, I think there's an extra kind of uh, discomfort there with, you know, women are supposed to be nurturing and we're supposed to be mothers and we're supposed to mm -hmm. be uh, caregivers and kind of givers of life. We're not supposed to be takers of life. And, um, you see a lot of the discourse on female serial killers talking about how masculine they are. Um, so for mm -hmm. example, Belle mm -hmm. was a um, woman who um, killed several of her husbands and suitors in uh, Northern Indiana in the early 20th century. Um, and she's called the black widow of Laporte, which is where she was from. But she's also, if you look at descriptions, people will say, well, you know, she was really tall and she had really broad shoulders and she had really big hands. And you'll even see people at the time say, I don't even know if I think she was really a woman. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the, you know, and she gave birth to several children. It, 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 <laughs> she certainly was biologically a woman, or at least all the evidence points to that. But it's a, well, she can't really be a woman and do these terrible things. So she, ha we have to make her into some kind of something that we can understand to make us feel a little safer and that like, okay, we're right. A real, real regular person can't do this. It has to be, you know, mm -hmm. something else. Yeah. Make them into a boogeyman. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and this is a thing I see on uh, these true crime communities uh, is that some of these, particularly ones that we don't know as much about, you know, that either they were never caught or, we don't know their full victims. Israel Keys is one that kind of has become a boogeyman figure that is the go-to explanation for any unsolved crime between certain time periods. It's, oh, it's probably Israel Keys. Like, may have been nowhere near there. We may have proof that he was nowhere near there, but we can, you know, we can pull him up uh, because he's sort of very much in this kind of boogeyman type category. Um, Do we see differences, stark differences between female and um, male serial killers in the, in their ways of, of murder? For the most part, uh, there are, uh, you know, women are much more likely to use things like poison. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they're also seem to be a little more calculating and less kind of set off by a compulsion, um, which is why, while there's many fewer known female serial killers, a lot of them have much higher body counts because they often operate for a longer time before they're caught um, because 
there seems to be more of a, a degree of control over it. Um, they're more likely to do it um, if, for things like Belganis did it for money. You know, she kind of lure men in uh, with the promise of marriage and then kill them and mm-hmm. uh, take their money. So, um, yeah, I feel like the only two women serial killers that I'm familiar with is one. I just read a book called Before We Were Yours. Um, and it was about her. Oh, well, there was a lot of elements, but there was a um, a an orphanage and a, the woman's name was Georgia Tan. And she was estimated to have killed about 500 children, uh, upwards of about 500 children, mostly from neglect and uh, for children that she didn't feel were adoptable. She just kind of disposed of. Uh, so <laughs> it was for profit, I think, more so than for um, compulsion, like you were saying before. And the other one I, I knew of, um, a woman who ran, it was way back in the day, uh, who ran a, um, a weight diet, a, a weight clinic, um, where you, you went to lose weight and she basically uh, starved women to death. Do you, yeah, do you know I that? About that one and I can't remember her name, but the, the place was, wasn't it nicknamed like starvation Heights or something like that? The place where she <laughs> Yeah, and she would like people just like died under her care, but she believed in what she was doing, even though she was killing all these women right. who were coming to her spa. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Yeah, there's quite a few, you know, and there's um, Jane Toppin, who was a nurse um, and who uh, killed her patients, and it didn't get noticed for a long time because most of them were, you know, already in poor health. That's why they were in a hospital, and um, she did a lot of um, giving overdoses of tranquilizers and then bringing people back. And, and, um, uh, but she's estimated to think to have killed over a hundred people as well. Uh, well, I, I, um, I read this book recently. It was called, uh, what was it called? Uh, if the shoe fits. And it was a retelling of a Cinderella story. And I found it interesting and I wanted to bring it up because she changed the narrative um, in the story to instead of having the stepmother and stepsisters as villains, she changed them to be supportive. And it was a modern ta- modern day retelling of Cinderella. And I thought that, that was a really interesting choice because one of the things that you mentioned in your um, one of your lectures was that folktales require monsters, and that's like one of the you know, main criteria, but in modern day and contemporary literature, we're kind of changing villains to be not quite so clear cut. And in, in fact, in the retelling of this story, um, there wasn't even a clear cut villain. There was, I, I'm not actually clear on who the villain was in the story, although there was, you know, conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just curious about your take on, how are we changing as a society in, in terms of like we need boogeymans in real life, but not necessarily in literature or wh- what are your, I'm not really sure what my question is here, but I, I just thought yeah. that that was really interesting. That is really interesting. And I haven't read that book. Um, it's, you know, I think in that case also maybe reflective about um, different ways of viewing uh, I don't know, just kind of what women are likely to be up against in the world, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I love that idea of them working together and being supportive instead of, 
enemies. Um, but you know, one thing I think that is lost on modern audiences when we hear Cinderella is, you know, this the stepmother conflict and all of the anxiety that people historically had over inheritance when, you know, one child's going to inherit everything and you don't have male heirs. And, you know, you see that a lot in these folk tales and it's a way of, you know, kind of learning about the culture that produced them. And so, you know, nowadays, I mean, not that we don't have issues with inheritance and things like that today, but it's, I think less of a constant concern for people and more so like maybe, uh, you know, fighting against just patriarchal society together, or, you know, it might be, mm-hmm. you know, kind of framing our conflicts differently. Um, one thing because that, back in that time period, inheritance usually went to like the firstborn son and then the other, chi- the other children didn't really get anything. So they didn't have to parcel things out into smaller parcels. Is that right? Right. I mean, it, it you know, it depends on the specific time and specific place and there's, you know, variation, but yeah, usually it was, you know, whoever there's the firstborn son got if not everything at least most things and then mm-hmm. everyone else was kind of you know trying to find their own way this is also what I you see a lot. You. Oh, no, saying uh, something else um i'm my, my brain but you know there's also why a lot of times you'll have heroes in these stories that's the youngest child they'll often be three children and it's the youngest child that's the the um the kind of unlikely hero. Well, that's because the youngest children were more likely to have to go and make their way in the world. Um, mm-hmm. They were not going to have things as easy as their older siblings were. Um, as a youngest yeah. child, I've always appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> I have been noticing that in the, the stories I've been reading to my children. Um, can we uh, talk a little bit about the podcast that you had? I, I didn't mention it in your bio, but you had a, a podcast called Crime Lore, where you looked at um, the intersection between legends and and folklore. Can you talk a little bit about that podcast? Yeah. Um, and it, and I, I always tell people we're officially still just on hiatus. Uh, we may be back. <laughs> we have uh, four episodes that uh, have been recorded and never released because I've just never gotten around to editing them. Uh, and I got a new job and my uh, co-podcaster was is in the final stages with his dissertation. And uh, mm. so, um, I just kind of been focused on other things, but yeah. it, uh, what we did there was mostly focused on urban legends and um, looking at uh, kind of what those urban legends told us about our views on um, crime and the, you know, kind of what the world was like. And then we looked at the truth behind them. So are there real life parallels? Are there, um, so, for example, um, poison Halloween candy, uh, the, the stories mm-hmm. about kids getting uh, poison or razor blades in their Halloween candy, and those have been going around for quite a long time. Um, and the reality is that that's not something that has happened from strangers, that generally when someone's been, a child's been poisoned by tainted candy, it's about a family member. Um, there are, you know, there's a notable uh, story in Texas where um, a father did kill one of his children and tried to kill another child and also tried to cover it up, tried to poison a neighbor child. Um, and he was caught in, but you know, he tried to say, Oh, well, I got this from this one house on the street. That was kind of, the door was lights were out, but I knocked on the door anyway. And this guy just handed me these pixie sticks that turned out to be, um, have poison in them. Um, but the stories are never that it's a parent hurting a child. It's always that it's, you know, some creepy guy at the end of the street mm-hmm. or the, the, um, hippies at the you know 
uh, block away or it's, you know, often tied in, in the eighties with satanic panic and this idea is these mm-hmm. devil worshipers that are after our children. And then <laughs> after, after September 11th, then it was like uh, terrorists are going to, you know, go after our children that way. And um, it absolutely tells you where our kind of cultural fears are at the moment. But it's interesting that we don't talk about parents killing their children. Cause that's, I think a little too horrific to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's one thing that's interesting in a parallel that uh, fairy tales have with true crime that legends don't and that legends, the villain is always the the stranger lurking in the shadows. It's always the, um, it's always the stranger danger kind of villain. It's not someone close to you. And of course you're in much more danger statistically from someone close to you as a woman, you're most likely to be murdered by your intimate partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but those don't make good legends. It's, you know, <laughs> Uh, because I think it's so uncomfortable to talk about. It's so terrifying to think about um, that that danger could be so close to home. Yeah. Do you have a favorite urban legend? I think my favorite, and I don't know if it's my favorite, if it, you know, at this point in my life, I don't know if I can really say it's my favorite because I like it or it's my favorite because it's a really good teachable legend and it works really great for me in classroom settings. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but I really like the killer in the back seat, which is the story okay. of, woman who's driving at night and there's a truck following her that keeps flashing its brights at her and she's keeps trying to switch lanes or or turn to get away from it and it keeps following her and it keeps flashing its brights at her and she's you know getting progressively panicked and uh, finally pulls into her driveway and runs for the door screaming for her husband to come out but and the truck pulls in behind her, but instead of following her, the truck driver gets out and goes to her back seat and pulls a man out of her back seat. And it turns out that um, there's a man in her back seat with a knife and this mm-hmm. truck driver happened to notice it and was flashing his brights because every time the man raises, raised the knife up, the truck driver would flash its bright, his brights um, and the person would duck back down. Um, and I like, I always tell people, I mean, this is true, but my mother told me the story when I was 16 and she told it to me as a true story. She didn't say this is a legend. She said that this happened, uh, you know, and it's so easy to, you know, again, it's something that's very teachable, but a fairly common experiment experience, I think with women of my age and that mm-hmm. we heard this about that time often from our mothers. And it's that, um, you know, be careful when you're at, you're 16, you're going to finally have the freedom to leave the house on your own, uh, to go out, uh, without your parents to look out for you. So we need to make sure that you're going to be safe. You need to check your back seats. Uh, you need to be aware of your surroundings as you're getting into your car in an empty parking lot. Uh, you know, kind of pay attention to these things. And um, it's interesting. I've surveyed my students that I've had a lot of female students who were told the stories. I've never once had a male student who was told the story by a parent. Um, interesting. And so it's getting at this, you know, this idea that women are more vulnerable. And, you know, a statistic I like to throw out for my students to blow their minds is that, um, 75% of murder victims in the U.S. are men, uh, which I'm not saying that's a good thing. Obviously, murder is terrible no matter what. But I think if you look at news coverage or you look at the way we talk about it, you would think women are much more likely to be victims than men are. And in fact, men are mm. much more likely to be victims. And I don't know, maybe some of that is because men don't expect to be victims and they're not taking basic precautions. I don't know. Um, that's not my More feeling, likely but. to get in a fight. Maybe they're more <laughs> likely to... <laughs> get into an argument and just end up dead. I think certainly. Yeah. I think that a lot of it's that kind of thing. Um, and of course there's some of those are associated with uh, drug trade and um, gang violence and things like that, but that's a fairly small percentage wise. Um, but yeah, you know, so it's interesting that 
Uh, and so much, many of the dynamics there and that like, she thinks that the danger is this car that's following her and it's actually something much closer. Um, mm-hmm. She thinks it's a truck driver. Truck drivers have, I mean, and part of it is real that there have been several serial killers who were truck drivers and that's how they um, eluded the police for so long is that they were operating cross country. Um, mm-hmm. There's kind of this fear that's developed around truck drivers. And of course, most truck drivers are perfectly nice law-abiding citizens um, but mm-hmm. uh, and that sort of kind of plays on that if she assumes that's the danger but it's actually something even closer um, it's also just nice and spooky and, yeah um, well I personally loved the podcast I I didn't listen to the whole thing but I did listen to three in one day because I found it very addicting so I do hope that you continue it <laughs> I'm glad we really helped you you know we really love it and we uh, you know had a lot more of it mapped out and it just you know as you're aware, doing a podcast takes a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And what what drew you to that topic in particular for a, a podcast topic? So that was, you know, the minute I started studying true crime stuff, lots of people started saying, you need to have a podcast. And mm. I'm kind of joking. Yeah, because what the world doesn't have enough of is true crime podcasts. Obviously, right. <laughs> And I was determined I wouldn't do it if I couldn't come up with like an angle that I felt like was unique on it and um, mm-hmm. you know, something that I, I, something that I could bring to it that nobody else would. And I played around with a couple of different ideas initially. You know, I kind of looked into the, or I thought a lot and had lots of notes about doing um, kind of something that was a little more investigative and thinking like, well, what, what can I as a folklorist bring to actually investigating something and what, you know, just my knowledge of culture and groups and things, what could that bring to it? And, I really ultimately decided I was in over my head with that and that I didn't necessarily need to be poking around in that. And I'm not, that's not a critique of investigative podcasts. I think some of them have done great things, but I think you have to be really careful about doing that. And I Mm. didn't Mm -hmm. feel like I was prepared to, there was no way I was going to do something like that without talking to, for example, victims' families. And I didn't feel prepared Mm. to do that. Um, That's something that, again, I think that can be done very well and has had great results, but I didn't feel like I was qualified to do that. And mm-hmm. I wasn't going to go re-traumatize somebody and like bring up the worst thing that had happened to them in their life just for my own, you know, whatever. So playing around with that and kind of dropping those ideas and thinking like that. And I wouldn't say for, with either one of those, there's kind of two different versions of that that I poked around with. And I won't say that either one of this is completely abandoned that I might go back at some point in my career to those things, but I just didn't feel like at that point yeah. I was ready. And um, it was actually... Um, I don't know if I ever told my friend that kind of gave me the idea inadvertently this, but I was talking with a friend of mine and she had saying she was reading a book that I had recommended to her about um, a serial killer. And she said, you know, I have to tell you though, as much as I like the book, you telling me about it was way more interesting than reading this book is. And hmm. I kind of triggered something in my brain about, I have a background as a storyteller, a background in performance um, at a, another life as a circus performer before I became a folklorist or actually contemporary. That's amazing. But, um, and I thought, you know, that is the ability to tell a story is something that I do feel like, I don't know that I'm like the greatest at, but I think I am a little more in tune to the ability to tell stories. And so that was where I kind of came up with the idea of, okay, it's going to start off with me telling the story. And if you listen to the podcast, you know, every episode starts off with me telling a legend. Mm-hmm. And that's where that came from. And, I had been bouncing around a lot of these ideas with uh, my best friend and at the time housemate, uh, Jesse Fivecoat, who's another folklorist and had 
he'd previously done a different podcast called Encounters and um, he kept kind of, I noticed he was getting really interested in it and he like kept getting, uh, you know, more and more engaged with the ideas and he kept thinking, you know, you should do this. And, and he, yeah, it kind of makes me want to podcast again. I would love, and I finally just said, Jesse, do you want to do this with me? Do you want to be involved in this? And uh, I said, well, you know, I do, but I don't really have the time. And so we kind of arranged it, uh, you know, so that he didn't have to do any research and he was just kind of my conversation <laughs> partner, which we're good at because we're, uh, I always tell everyone he's the baby brother I never had or wanted. <laughs> so we can chat pretty well. And so, um, yeah, you'll have great banter. It was a, it was a gradual process, but it, I think I was proud of what we came up with, which is again, why I really would like to go back to it someday. But. Yeah, well, I, I definitely hope you do. It was, a, it's a very interesting topic. And so anyone um, who is interested in listening to it, it's called Crime Lore and it's on most podcasting uh, yes. streaming. Um, okay. So back to, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, oh, I wanted to go back to the crime solving communities because I, like I said, I'm not really into true crime myself. So I wasn't familiar with this, but you said this is a pretty extensive, there's quite a few of them, right? There are. And some of them are very large, you know, some of them are kind of small and centered on like one case or one location, but some of them are really large with, you know, um, thousands and thousands of members. And, uh, you know, one thing I always feel like I need to tell people about studying true crime communities is as much as I'm dealing with really dark material and I'm, you know, uh, like there are times where I have to kind of step away from it because it, it gets to be a little bit much for me. But I also see really beautiful things in terms of uh, people that are willing to uh, just give their free. There's nothing that they're going to gain from this. It's just like mm-hmm. to call people out and, I saw one time where someone had posted about a grandparent that had been murdered and um, the case was never closed and they were kind of interested in maybe looking into it. And immediately people that lived near where it happened said, well, you know, I live near that courthouse and I'd be willing to go on my lunch break and pull records for you if you let me know what you need. And um, they were trying to talk about maybe getting in contact with somebody who was in jail and someone else said, you know, I don't like to talk about this, but I was in prison for a little while when I was in my twenties and, one of the easiest ways to get the attention of someone who's in prison is to put money in their commissary account. And, you know, all of this, the people just jumping in and volunteering information and volunteering to help when, you know, they had nothing to gain from any of that. And that is really beautiful. And there's something about, yeah. like, maybe there is, uh, you know, all the bad things that are going on. Maybe that, you know, there is some good, like some kind of, I don't know, civic responsibility or something that people do have. That is really nice. And do you find that the the communities are successful? I mean, are there a lot of crimes that end up being closed? Not a lot. Um, and I and I I should say also there there have been times where it's gone completely off the rails, and someone's um, mm-hmm. has been innocent, has been um, accused and harassed, and there's some really terrible things that have happened too. Um, but where they've had the best success, I think, has been with identifying um, unidentified bodies, John and Jane Doe's. Uh, mm. and of course, there's been a lot of those recently that have been identified with genetic genealogy, which is, of course, growing. And some of the genetic genealogists are people that kind of got into it from this online crime solving world. Um, oh, wow. So there's been an interesting uh, relation there. But um, in terms of building family trees, these are not the geneticists for the most part. But <laughs> um, uh, like one of the, I think, more famous cases is uh, a man who was known for years as Jason, as a grateful doe. His real name is Jason Callahan. But he was a man who was killed in a car accident. 
And uh, it was just an accident. He wasn't actually a crime victim, but um, he had no identification on him. He had been a hitchhiker. And the only clues to his identity were uh, that he had Grateful Dead tickets on him. And for, I think, 20 years, he was completely unknown. And someone started posting his uh, photos and uh, reconstructed, you know, kind of drawings, reconstructing his um, face online and started using Grateful Doe um, groups online to spread this word and say, okay, we know this guy like the great, not the Grateful Doe, Grateful Dead uh, groups and um, yeah. tried to spread the image there. And eventually someone else said, oh, I, I knew that guy. I don't know his last name, but his first name was Jason and um, came up with more photos and it circulated until his mother actually saw the photos and said, actually, I know who that is. That was my son. He's been missing. Um, and of course, this is, you know, a sad outcome that she didn't know her son was deceased and she found that out. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, she hoped, I'm sure, that he was still alive, but mm-hmm. at least she has closure. At least she has answers. At least he has his name back. Mm-hmm. Um, so there have been things like that. There haven't, I don't know of any actual crimes being solved um, mm. purely by amateurs. Again, there's been, um, there have been, uh, and I don't know where you put the law, the, the line on amateur or not. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Bearbrook case. Um, it was uh, a woman and three children whose bodies were found in barrels in a place called Bearbrook. And um, the, at some point they identified the man who killed them, but still he was deceased by the time they identified him. And mm. uh, they could not identify who this woman and the children were. They knew that two of the children were related to the woman and one of the children was not. And uh, it was a librarian who ended up just kind of poking around on ancestry forms, looking for people who were looking for missing loved ones. Um, not, it's not that they you know, hadn't necessarily identified these people as being, endangered missing just kind of hey you know my uncle had this daughter and I don't know what happened to her and she uh, was able to piece together through that and figure out who the woman and the two daughters were Um, oh wow so there have been um, situations like that so like I I know one of the more famous podcasts was Serial and he recently the from the first episode from the first season he was released. Did that have anything to do with the podcast and like the people who listen to the podcast that do you, do you know anything about that? I think, uh, yeah, I think it definitely had something to do. I think in terms of, uh, which is another kind of intangible with a lot of these things is just getting cases attention. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's unlikely that without the pressure created by the podcast and by people who heard the podcast and then, uh, you know, listen to it. I don't know that his case would have gotten looked at by authorities mm-hmm. the way that it did to eventually realize. And I, I haven't followed the latest development. I know he was let out and I know that they were running DNA on new evidence that had been found. And so I don't know if they got anything inclusive or that or not, but they have said mm-hmm. that not only is he out, but they don't plan to pursue new charges. And I know that the reality is, uh, most police departments are overworked and don't, if they have any kind of cold case department at all, which a lot of police departments don't, they're um, really short staffed. And a lot of times it's just cold cases are just kind of something that people work on on their spare time. And often people don't have spare time. And right. you'll hear um, victims' families given are often given advice like send cookies uh, with a picture of your loved one on it to 
the officer who's in charge of your loved one's case because anything you can do to kind of keep them in your mind keep your loved one in their mind is going to make them more likely to look into the case. And right. So I think podcasting and um, these online communities can sometimes help create pressure on again, create interest to get a case resources that it wouldn't otherwise have. Do you know if police departments are ever like utilizing these, these communities? I mean, especially if they were like local communities. I don't, I don't know if, um, too many. I know that there's been situations that, of course, this is one that kind of, at least at one point, went off the rails. But after the Boston Marathon bombing, um, mm-hmm. there was a big push by the Boston police to say, if you were at the marathon and you have photos or video or anything, can you please share that so that you know we can help identify you know anything? And that's a case where um, someone got misidentified. Uh, someone had posted that one of the bombers was someone she'd gone to school with. And he happened to be, his, his name was Neil Tripathi. He happened to be missing at the time. And then it, people started acting on the assumption, oh, well, he's definitely one of the bombers. And his family was harassed. They got death threats. And it actually turned out that he had died from suicide. And so this family is not only dealing with this horrible tragedy that their you yeah. know loved one is gone, but they're also now being publicly harassed um, mm-hmm. because people think that their loved one is a murderer. And I don't think the person who posted that had any ill intention. I think she just maybe underestimated how fast things could spread. She just tweeted, Oh, I think that's the guy I went to school with and it all spiraled out of control from there. So I don't know if because it went off the rails there, if that's maybe made police departments a little more hesitant to um, Hmm. try and engage that way. But yeah, that would definitely make sense. Yeah. Well, running out of time, is there anything that we haven't covered that your research um, that is surprising or interesting that you feel like our listeners would be interested in hearing about? Um, I'm trying to think, probably. One thing, so uh, just kind of a fun thing. So there's a term we use in folklore studies called ostension, which is basically acting out a legend. Um, so this is like when you go to the San Antonio ghost tracks and put your car in, you know, you've heard that this happens. So you go there to that place to kind of try to live out what happens or any kind of haunted spot. Um, but folklore have also said, you know, it's also kind of a kind of ostension if we, something happens to us and we interpret that through having heard a legend. So I don't know if you listened to this episode of the podcast. I talked about it on one episode that I had an experience where I was driving. I got into my car late at night and was driving home down a dark uh, wooded road. And I started smelling men's cologne. Mm-hmm, and I yeah. completely convinced there was a man hiding somewhere in my car because I couldn't come up with any other reason that there would be men's cologne in my car. And it actually turned out it was the soap at my friend's house <laughs> that mm-hmm. smelled like men's cologne. And I hadn't noticed it until I was in a really enclosed spot. But that was a good example of me. I interpreted this random thing uh, through the lens of, because I'd heard this legend. And I, this is something else I see, I think, a lot on these crime-solving communities. I actually just see this generally on social media. Someone has a weird interaction in Target, and they've heard all these stories about human traffickers stalking yeah. uh, grocery stores. And immediately, that weird guy I talked to must have been a human trafficker. And mm-hmm. they start spreading, you know you know, be wary that uh, we'll see this, you know, and I think you see that in some, again, like online postings that 
I feel like any woman in a certain age in certain parts of the country uh, had an encounter with Ted Bundy at a shopping mall. Like there's so many people saying, oh yeah, you know, I ran into this guy at a shopping mall on this date. And then I later on recognized him in a picture of Ted Bundy. Mm -hmm. Probably some of them weren't, probably some of those are legit. I'm sure he had times where he tried to target women and failed, but I'm also pretty positive. Some of those were just other creepers. (laughs) There's a lot of creepy guys that weren't on Ted Bundy, but I think that's a form of us tension too, that people are, they know about Ted Bundy. And so they're interpreting this unsettling experience they had 30 years ago with a man. Well, it had to have been Ted Bundy. Right. Um, It couldn't, you know, be someone else. So. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, how interesting. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, This is, super enlightening and uh, a different look at um, crime than we normally get from the crime podcast in the podcast universe. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for having me on. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. And, you know, you, you studied so much, you have so many other areas of research. We might just have to bring you on at a later date to, to talk about some of your other um, areas because some, so many of them were, were fascinating. So We'll have to look at that at a later date. Yeah, just let me know. Um, So thank you, Folky Friends, for listening today. All the links we mentioned will be on our website, www.fabricoffolklore.com. And as always, if you enjoyed the show, please let us know. You can do that by chiming in on our Facebook group, um, by subscribing, by liking, and giving us at least 1,000 stars on iTunes. Um, but most importantly, you can help us by telling people that you have, that you meet about our show. Uh, you can meet, you can tell your neighbor when you run into them at their, at the mailbox about the coolest podcast that is having you rethink everything you've known about life. So I hope to see you back soon and, uh, see you next time.